Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We like to think that 2020 is, quote-unquote, a historical year that will be remembered for generations to come. Maybe true, maybe not. Uh, what can be said, though, for sure, is that when you compare it to other historical years in the past, it's still relatively undramatic. For example, we compare it to 1945, the year that represents the end of the Second World War. Um, 2020 seems almost like child's play. Uh, David Nassau is a very distinguished historian. He's written a lot of award-winning books, uh, biographies of famous people, William Randolph Hearst, Joseph Kennedy, uh, Carnegie, but he has turned his erudition to a study of 1945 and of the refugee crisis uh, of that year. The book is called The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. It's a very sobering book. Uh, David, it took you eight years, quite an accomplishment. Yeah, it took much longer than I thought, uh, in part because I had to acquaint, I'm a US historian, and I had to learn a lot about Eastern Europe, about Soviet history, about British history, and about the, the history of World War II. As I said, it's a very sobering read, particularly the beginning. Most readers won't be as acquainted, obviously, as you are, with the, 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 the decimated landscape of Europe in 1945. Tell people about it. What did it look like? I think decimated is the exact right word. The Allies, four air forces, the Canadian, the English, the Soviet and the Americans bombed you know, the hell out of uh, Germany. They literally destroyed it. Um, it was infinitely worse. When the American soldiers got there, they thought it was gonna look like London and London had been very badly damaged by the war. But it was, it was incredible. Everywhere you looked, there was rubble. There were destroyed buildings. But more than that were the destroyed people. The Germans had survived as long as they did in World War II with millions of soldiers in the East and millions more in the West because they imported guest laborers, slave laborers, concentration camp, and death camp and labor camp survivors into Germany to do the work of the soldiers who were on the front lines. And because of that, when the war was over, there were eight to 10 million homeless foreigners wandering the streets, homeless, starving, malnourished, ill. And that was what struck the journalists, and the soldiers even more than the destroyed buildings when they entered Germany. They weren't and just Jews, were they? I mean, we, we obviously associate 
1945 with the liberation of the concentration camps, but many of the people wandering around Germany and Central Europe were other kinds of slave laborers from other countries who, who many of them weren't Jewish. No, there were hundreds of thousands of Yugoslavs, of Poles, of Estonians, uh, Latvians, Lithuanians. Uh, there were also French, Belgian, English, American prisoners of war. All of them just let loose into this maelstrom, into this crisis when the war was over. You know, the, Germany was collapsed. It, it literally collapsed. There was no one to deliver the mail, no one to deliver the food, no one to, you know, no police, no soldiers, nothing. And it took some time for the allies to get in there and try to establish order and begin to feed people, clothe people, give them shelter and the medical assistance they needed. David, um, many, many viewers, I think, will be intimately acquainted with Hollywood movies that present 1945 as a dramatic liberation. The war ended, the Nazis were defeated, they somehow left the stage of history and everything went back to normal. But as your book suggests, that's anything but the truth. You know, war, wars just don't end. Uh, the sun doesn't come out and shine when the hostilities cease. The aftermath of war is an aftermath of suffering, and it's the, the innocent, it's the civilians who suffer, who go hungry, who have no homes, who have no families. And the aftermath of World War II was as frightening as, you know, any the, the world has known. You know, we, we like to think or Americans like to think that when the war was over, the greatest generation came home. And we, the only real victors in World War II, I mean, there were no foreign troops, there were no Nazis on American soldiers, on American soil. We like to think that when the war was over, we shared our bounty with the survivors. Well, we didn't, we didn't. Um, we had had enough of Europe. And until the Marshall Plan came along, we just closed our doors and, you know, said, fend for yourselves. All news is biased in some way. Reporters may add biased language, consciously or unconsciously, but the outcome is the same. Bias in the news impacts how we see the world. Ground News is a new app that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. It's the first ever news comparison platform. Ground News collects data from over 50,000 news sources and runs real-time media bias tracking. Then the coverage bias rating is visually shown alongside the story. For every story you read, you can compare how reporting differs across sources with different political biases and see if the coverage of Scory skews more to the left or to the right. Ground News represents a larger movement of people who are fed up with traditional, highly politicized news. 
No one wants to be spoon-fed ideas or subtly influenced. Ground News gives the power to the people so you can make up your own mind. Want to learn more and try it for free? Just head to ground.news forward slash Keenon and enter Keenon and get seven days free of Ground News Pro. As an exclusive limited time offer, listeners of Keenon will get 25% off Ground News premium membership. So what are you waiting for? Start judging the truth for yourself today. As I suggested, David, your career as a historian, an award-winning historian, has focused on world-famous individuals, whether it's Hearst or Kennedy or Carnegie. This time, you're doing the reverse. You're, you're writing about the last million, most of whom are entirely anonymous. Why, why did you shift as a, as a historian from writing about world historical figures like William Randolph Hearst to writing about people that no one has ever heard of and perhaps no one will ever hear, will have ever heard of because many of their records no longer survive? It's exactly because no one had ever heard of these people. And I felt some obligation as a historian to let their voices ring out. Um, this is a sorry episode in, in American history and world history. And it stands as a beginning of you know, 75 to 80 years in which the world has paid scant attention to the displaced persons that world wars and civil wars have created. Millions upon millions upon millions. This was the first episode. And Franklin Roosevelt knew what was coming and Churchill knew what was coming. And in 1943, they created a United Nations organization to take care of the refugees from World War II. But they had no idea there would be so many and such terrible situations. So what they did was they put them in camps. They put them in camps. The first refugee camps were refugee camps in Germany, a couple in Austria and a couple in Italy. And they were for mostly Eastern Europeans who either could not return home or like the Jews had no homes to return to. Your book is, as you say, it's a book about ghosts, but some of those ghosts you bring to life. Are there a couple of stories that really resonated with you? Stories about ordinary people that somehow speak to this terrible suffering, this appalling year of 1945? I got a chance to meet a couple, Itzik Lachman, who was 99 when I met him. He just died of COVID and his wife, Lola. And they had met when they were young in Poland. They had ended up in a series of camps, finally in Auschwitz, and then in the displaced persons camp. And they met again and they fell in love and they married. And they survived the displaced persons camp because they had relatives in the United States who welcomed them. 
I met them in a assisted living or a nursing home in New York. And after all they had gone through, Itzik, again, he's 99 years old, he looks at me and he said, I made it. He said, I'm with a wonderful woman, I have children, I have grandchildren. He said, I survived. And that's, you know, an extraordinary story. These were brave, brave people, the displaced persons. Um, the last million, as, a, as I refer to them. And there were lots and lots of stories in my book. There were also stories of people like Bishop Trifa. There were stories of Nazi collaborators and war criminals who sought refuge in the displaced persons camps, who erased their past, who took on new identities, and who, because the military authorities were only interested in keeping Nazis, in keeping communists out of the United States, were able to sneak their way in to the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, where they hid in plain sight for 30 years uh, until discovered. And by the time they were discovered, they had lived a lifetime in freedom, in the kind of freedom that they denied others. So these are the two kinds of stories that ripple through my book. Yeah, and, and, you, and, and you tell these stories in a, in a very vivid and incredibly memorable, meaningful and emotional way. David, how much is this period and this story of the last million, these million displaced persons who were somehow pawns of the Cold War, uh, how much is it a blot on the history of the great powers, particularly the United States and the United Kingdom? I think it's an enormous plot. I think the, the United Kingdom behavior, especially towards the, um, the European Jews is, I mean, the cruelty, the brutality, the unwillingness to let any of them into Palestine under any circumstances um, is a crime against humanity and should be recognized as such. The Americans were almost as bad. The Americans waited three full years before they allowed any of the displaced persons to resettle in the United States. And then under the harshest of, of conditions, um, there were some good guys, the Australians and the Canadians especially. Surprise, opened surprise. Their, opened their doors. It's always, and, it's always the same people, right? Yeah, and, and they opened their doors in large part. The, the difference between the refugees that I talk about and the refugees today was when the war was over, there was an international labor shortage. And the South Americans, the Australians, the Canadians, the English, the Belgians needed laborers. So they took the Poles and the Estonians and the Latvians. They didn't ask a lot of questions. They welcomed them into the countries. Um, they put them to work. Um, it's, it's also not a, you know, the Soviet Union bears a great deal of the blame. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask. I mean, was the behavior of, of, of the Soviets worse? I know these things are hard to compare. Was it even less moral, more objectionable than, 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 than the behavior of the UK and the US? Probably, yeah. The, the Soviets 
demanded that all the displaced persons simply return home. You know, and they said, if you didn't want to go home, if you were a Pole who was 22 years old and you had spent four years as a slave laborer and you didn't know what was going on back home and your village had been destroyed and your family had been destroyed by the Nazis and you didn't want to go back to Poland, the Soviets and their Polish puppets said, sorry, you got to go back. You have no choice. Um, and that was as cruel and brutal almost as what and, and, and this was in the context of a a stalinist soviet union where prisoners were returning war prisoners were returning only to be imprisoned or 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 or, or, uh, or killed those who did return to the soviet union or to lithuania and latvia and estonia which were now part of the soviet union thought they were going to go home to their families but instead they went to resettlement camps the KGB predecessors grilled them endlessly, and then they were sent off to labor camps for a year or two before they were allowed to go home. Um, there was nothing humane about that. David, you, your, your story is about Europe's displaced persons, but of course, um, the, the the post-Second World War world resulted in other displaced persons around the world. When I was reading the book, uh, it occurred to me that the Palestinians, for example, have been, or the, the, the Palestinians who were displaced after 1948, have now been displaced for 50 or 60 years. Is there a particular lesson in your book to the history of Israel and of their treatment of Palestinians? It is one of the extreme ironies of 20th century history, that the only place for 200,000 Jewish refugees was in homes, in villages, on farms, and on settlements that had been cleared by the Israeli army of Palestinians. So in order to make room for the Jewish refugees whom no one wanted, millions of Palestinians were displaced. And unlike the Jews, who after three to five years were resettled out of Germany, the Palestinian refugees remain in camps, largely in Jordan, but in other nations in the Middle East. And that is, you know, that is a crime without precedent. Um, like the displaced persons in Europe, the Palestinians have done the best they can. They've turned their camps into villages, into towns, but they can't return home. They can't return home to the homes of their ancestors and their parents and their grandparents and generations before that. And they are forced to live in, in virtual squalor for generation after generation after generation, while the world looks on and while the united nations thinks its duty is simply to feed them and provide medical care in these horrid camps well that's not enough i think history is never ending of course uh, uh, david your book ends in what 1949 1950 i know this isn't a hollywood narrative there is no happy ending 
But the ending wasn't a catastrophe. I mean, it, the, the, the four year or the five years that you cover in the book does end. I mean, there aren't any more displaced person camps in Europe after the Second World War. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, and I think, you know, what, what historians do is we make, we try to make our readers understand that the past is different from the present, that the past is a foreign country. What happens with the displaced persons after World War II is one, because they're white and European. Two, because there's a worldwide labor shortage. And three, because there are only a million of them. And four, because the United States wants to get them out of Germany. So a West German state can be created. Um, homes are found for the last million. It takes five years, but homes are found for them. That is not the case with the displaced persons of the 21st century or the Palestinians over the last 70 years. Yeah, and those displaced people, of course, have flooded back into Central and Eastern Europe uh, uh, over the last three or four years. How did researching and writing this book change your thinking about the, the current refugee crisis in, in Central and Eastern Europe, which of course stems from North Africa and the Middle East? It, it, it just, I don't know, it, it, you know I, it made me sad, you know, it is grievous that 80 years after this, the establishment of these first displaced persons camps, we should have them all over the world. And particularly, and, I guess, and, we, given, the, given the, the increasing xenophobia in Poland and Hungary, which were, of course, the centers of this crisis in the first place. Yeah, I mean, w when we look today, I mean, the, the same crisis of, of nationalism, of ultra-nationalism, in which too many world leaders and too many people think Poland first, Serbia first, the United States first, America first, absolves them of any responsibility towards the others. You know, and, and that's something that nobody believed was gonna happen in 1945. The United Nations had just been created. Every nation on earth was part of the United Nations. And there was a sense that nationalism would be tempered by an internationalism. Um, and for a moment that looked like it was gonna be the case, certainly in Europe, um, regrettably it has not been the case. We are in a cycle now of extreme nationalism, which breeds, as you said, xenophobia. Churchill made, uh, Churchill made lots of famous remarks. Uh, the one about America, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if this is exact, but he said something like, you know, Americans always get it wrong until they get it right. Uh, well, they always make continuous mistakes until they fall on the solution. And in a sense, my understanding of your book is that that's, true of this period is that Americans didn't distinguish themselves in the beginning, but ultimately as the strongest, the dominant internationalist power, they helped fix this last million crisis. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. How, given, and I don't want to turn this into a conversation, obviously, about Trump, but given Trump's overt rejection of America's internationalist responsibility, um, how, 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 how shocked should we be? I mean, after all, if Trump was in power in 1945, these last million would probably be still living in refugee camps. Right. What a frightening thought. Um, we've gone backwards. We've gone way backwards. And the question is, what will the long lasting damage be if Trump is not reelected? If he serves only four years, God forbid if he serves eight years, how do we return to an American role establishing international humanitarianism. I don't know, I don't know. But right now, and for the past three and a half years, we've been headed in the wrong direction. And we've been giving encouragement to those leaders in the UK, in Eastern Europe, in Turkey, in the Soviet Union, who are doing the exact same thing that we're now doing. You know, closing our borders, saying the hell with the rest of the world. One way to address this is these, these very troubling things that David talks about is to read this really amazing new book, The Last Million. It's a huge book. He spent eight years researching and writing, and it's an important contribution to understanding of the war and of our responsibility towards those less fortunate than us. David, I think the antidote to everything you're talking about are reading books like The Last Million. What other historical work should people be reading to make sense of the present, to make the world a better place, do you think? Yeah, I think Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands and a variety of anything that Timothy Snyder, a historian. And Snyder is actually going to appear on this show in the next couple of weeks to talk about his new book, Our Malady. So uh, On Tyranny, of course, is an also a very important book. They're... they're, they're they're extraordinary. And then I would suggest a very different uh, author, a man named Walter Kempowski, a German author, who kept track day by day by day of letters, of correspondence, of radio broadcasts, and wrote an incredible book that's now translated into English called Swan Song which is a nonfiction account of what goes on during the war. He was also a brilliant novelist. And his book, All for Nothing, tells about the aftermath of war and how no one really wins in war. You've been listening to Keenon, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez 
and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.